I'm going to be doing a message uh, this morning on on one of the miracles that Jesus uh, performed. And then next Sunday, uh, the final time I'll be sharing, uh, I'm going to be talking with you about the one thing that I would talk with if I were given a chance to any group of people, no matter the age, no matter the gender, whatever. In other words, it's one of the more significant things that I've learned for myself uh, from the Scripture. That'll be the final time we'll be sharing from the book of Hebrews, and you'll understand when we get there. But right now, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Steve, read for us, if you will. of his word, then we'll trust that he'll bless the sharing of some of the meaning, okay? Um, I never will forget. It was uh, in August of 1986. I was driving. We lived in Tulsa at the time, and I was driving from my home to wherever I was going. I don't remember where I was going. But I was listening to radio. I turned around, made my way back home because of what was being talked about. And it was about a shooting at the Edmund Post Office. And our brother-in-law, in fact, he and his wife had been here a couple of Sundays. They just got in late last night from California visiting their kids and a new grandbaby, so they're not here this morning. But Tommy and Jenny, you've met them. Uh, worked for the post office at that time, later retired from the post office, but he was in the Edmund uh, post office at the time of the shooting. <clears throat> and of course, you know as well as I do that uh, there were so many who were killed, and then the uh, Cheryl, the killer, uh, shot himself. It really was one of the worst tragedies that uh, any of us could ever imagine. And then in September, of 1999, I was driving home from Waco uh, on a Wednesday night. I'd concluded a Sunday morning through Wednesday night meeting. I was driving home, sleeping in my own bed, you know, so I didn't care how late I got in, I was getting in. And uh, Mary called me, and she said, do you have the radio on? I said, no. She said, uh, turn the radio on and uh, turn it on to uh, one of the Dallas-Fort Worth stations. So I turned on KRLD, and... Uh, it was talking about the shooting on Wednesday night that had just happened in Wedgwood Baptist Church. Well, Wedgwood, the church I pastored in Fort Worth for a number of years, was on the, uh, the north side of I-20, and Wedgwood was on the south side of I-20, with a little ways down. So we were quite familiar with church. In fact, we lived in the Wedgwood area when we were there. And uh, the shooter had gone in um, and on a Wednesday night killed seven and then himself. And then, of course, 
since then, there have been any number of school shootings. There have been the Murrow Building. And everybody knows where they were when that happened. And then, of course, 9-11. And, and what I'm describing to you uh, has become more commonplace than we would like to think. But these are, in my opinion at least, some scary times that we live in. Uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, uneasiness, and you can understand that. Uh, it, these are fearful, fearful times. Now my question is this, does the Word of God speak to the thing of fear? Is there anything in the Bible that can help us as believers, as Christians, living in fearful times? And the answer, of course, is rhetorical. There is an answer, and the answer is yes. Because the Bible is a very practical book, it's a relational book, and it talks about how we are to live life in the midst of the worst times imaginable with the greatest faith possible. And so the title of the study you have before you, by the way, I don't always follow the outline. I'm not even sure by the time I get here on Sunday what it looks like. I have to relook at it, but you write on that anything you'd like to write down if you ever hear anything worth writing down, and maybe the guideline there will help you. But the title is Moving from Fear to Faith, and that's what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning, moving from fear to faith. Now, we're going to see three simple little things, and the first thing we're going to see is what I'm calling the condition of the Savior. It's in verse 36. The scripture says in the 36th verse that Steve read a moment ago, and uh, when they had sent the, away the multitude, they took him. Now, the him is Jesus. Uh, the they are the disciples. They took him. Now, that little word took is the same word that uh, Martha used when she looked at Mary, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus and not helping in the kitchen. And Martha said, Lord, uh, tell her to help me, H-E-L-P. Uh, it's the same word, actually. Took, T-O-O-K. Help, H-E-L-P. Those are little words in the English language. The problem is the New Testament was not written in English. It's written in Greek. And here's the word that is there. It says they... Santo, sante, uh, sun ante lambanomide, Jesus. They sun ante lambanomide him. Now, what in the world is that? Well, the word soon in the Greek language means together, and ante or anti means opposite to. The Antichrist is opposite to everything Christ is. And lambano means to take or to seize, to take hold of or to carry. So when it says they sunante lambano might him, they took him, they helped him, they carried him. Ellie, would you help me up here just a minute? I asked this good looking guy if he would help me in my message this morning. He said, well, you pay me. <laughs> Well, the pay is not too good, but I think he's going to be able to help us. Have you ever, when you were a kid, done this? Reach over, turn, put your hand here on your arm, on your arm. Put it on my arm, right here. Now bend down. Have you ever done that? Had somebody climb in 
and then you carried them. I was going to ask Fred to come up and let us carry him, but I've decided, Elie, I neither one has the strength to do anything like that, so we won't. That's literally a picture of this Greek word, sunantilambanomai. They literally seized Jesus, took him, and carried him on board the ship. Now, by that, you can see he was really, really tired. No doubt about it. In fact, he was so tired that according to the passage Steve read a moment ago, the language gives the appearance that he went to the back of the ship, the hindermost part of the ship, and went to sleep after the storm had already started. In other words, it wouldn't make any sense if he went to sleep when everything was calm, and then the storm came up, and the disciples went in. They would have said, Lord, wake up. Wake up. We're all going to die. Or uh, something else. But they wouldn't have said, don't you even care that we're about to perish? The reason they asked that is because it's obvious he was so tired after the storm started, he just said, uh, I've got to get me a nap. And he went into the hinder part of the ship and went to sleep. Now, why in the world was Jesus so tired? I'm thinking it may be because in verse 1 of chapter 4, look at it if you will. The first verse, and it says, He began again to teach at the wayside, and there gathered to him a great multitude, so that he had to enter into a ship, and he sat on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land. In other words, he started teaching that day. Now look at verse 35. And the same day when the evening was come. Now, I don't know whether he had gotten off board and gone on to mingle among the crowd or not. All I know is it was the evening of that, that day he had been teaching all day, and he was totally exhausted. Now, wait a minute. Isn't it true, as some people seem to think, that if you minister or labor or teach as a pastor or Sunday school teacher or whatever, if you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, you never wear out. You never get tired. Isn't, isn't that the truth? Well, there's a good Greek word that covers that kind of theology. The word is baloney. <laughs> I had polio when I was a kid. In fact, I was the first uh, paper boy at age 13 that the Daily Oklahoman, back as it was known then, ever paid off on for polio. Uh, they took me to Cripple Children's Hospital. The first night I was in the hospital, they put me in an iron lung. It's one of those huge, monstrous things, you know. Scared me to death, but it wasn't but just for one night. The next morning, the doctor determined that my Although my legs were affected and they were paralyzed, uh, it wasn't an abdomen thing, and that was basically the reason so you could breathe, and I had no problem breathing, so they took me out of that iron lung. Long story short, uh, I recouped for several months. I have a curvature of the spine because of polio. My legs came back, but no one will ever see it because no one will ever take a shower with me. That's the only time you'd be able to see it. Uh, so no, no harm done. But... My point is this, through the years of preaching, sometimes I'd preach two times on Sunday morning, back in those days, every Sunday night, you know, and whatever else I'm doing. 
in the evenings when I'd get home, sometimes I'd have to lay down and prop my feet up just to release the tension on my back and all of that. I mean, I was literally exhausted. And one thing I know about Jesus, whatever he did, he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he did it. And the scripture says, when the evening came, they had to sunante lambano my him. Now, boy, that's something. By the way, that helps you understand Martha. I mean, she was really ticked. She didn't look in and say, Lord, would you ask Mary to help me? She said, Lord, would you tell Mary to sunante lambano my me? Boy, she got it out, didn't she? And that's the way Jesus was at the end of that day. Now, the reason he was tired is because we all have tanks inside us. Now, I'm going to chase a rabbit here for just a minute, okay? I don't mind chasing rabbits if they're fat when we catch them. And I hope that this one will be. Everybody has three, at least three tanks in them. We have a physical tank. We have an emotional tank. We certainly have a spiritual tank. And any time those tanks are drained or emptied for whatever reason, for whatever cause, when they get empty, um, we're really worn out. So a person can be worn out physically. They can be worn out emotionally. They can be worn out spiritually, you see? Now, what I've discovered about these three tanks in the years of counseling and, and the work that I've done is this. If you uh, are in the kind of thing that takes a physical demand, used to be an assembly line, you know, where you worked in a factory. And, the, and what you did was take each piece and put it together. Nobody around you. Sometimes you listen with headphones, you know, and you'd do that one thing. And at the end of the day, you hadn't talked to anybody. You hadn't met anybody. You'd just done the work. It was physical manual labor. Do you realize that when you have emptied your tank physically, in order to replenish it, you have to do the exact opposite. So if somebody has emptied their tank physically, they don't want to go home and start doing physical labor. What you need is to do something relational. In other words, you move from the physical to the relational because that's how you replenish your physical tanks. Do you know that's why most bars thrive in factory towns is because at the end of a day when people have done physical labor all day long, they want to get around somebody and enjoy the time together. And one of the most fun places to be, in the opinion of those who go there, is a bar on a Friday night when you finished a week. Uh, my, my dad went there. I've gone with them with him many times to those places, sometimes to pick him up because he couldn't drive home. But the point I'm making is there was a camaraderiness about that crowd because they were replenishing physical tanks that were drained. I'm not saying that's the reason everybody was there, but that's what happened when they would go to the bar. So that's the physical tank. You have to do the opposite, which is something uh, of a relational uh, manner. And if you drain yourself emotionally, by the way, that's what counselors do. Uh, that's what people who work with other people who are in trouble do. They have an emotional tank. You can't relate to people in trouble and in need and in pain 
and not come away being emotionally drained. Well, if you have an emotional tank that's emptied, what you have to do is the exact opposite, which is recreation. So what you do is move into something recreational. This is the reason ball games and so on are so good for people who are emotionally drained. Now, you think that, uh, you know, when they start pulling for the thunder to win and then all that kind of thing, that it would just drain them again. No, that's replenishing them. Even though they're giving out the shouts and so on, they're re being replenished in an emotional way. Does that make sense? Then there's the spiritual tank. This is what happens to most Bible teachers and pastors and staff members and, and uh, other people. They have, they've given out in a spiritual way, either teaching or sharing or helping, whatever, and they get spiritually drained. And you know one of the worst things that can happen for a guy that's in the ministry and is spiritually drained, one of the worst things he can do is to go off by himself to meet with the Lord. Uh, that's what Elijah did. Didn't work too well for Elijah. He went off by himself just until the Lord was going to be there. But it's not isolation that that man needs. Do you know what a pastor who is drained spiritually needs? He needs the exact opposite, physical labor. When I pastored in Wichita Falls, uh, Texas, the pastor of the First Baptist Church, huge church, didn't know me from Adam at the time. I knew of him, everybody did. But every time he mowed his grass, he never mowed it without a white shirt and tie on for some reason, but he always mowed his grass and worked in his yard. And the reason was because he was replenishing his spiritual tank. Does that make sense? So if your physical tank is empty, you need to get something relational going. If your emotional tank is empty, you need to get something recreational going. And if your, if your spiritual tank is empty, you need to get something physical going. Now, that's just a little rabbit that I thought we'd check, you know, chase and catch him and dress him and cook him and see if he's worth eating. Maybe that'll help you in something you're facing. But the point is simply this. Jesus was empty. He was tired. So they took him and went on board the ship. Now, that's the condition of the Savior. The second thing I want you to see is the concern of the sailors. The concern of the sailors. They had right to be concerned. I mean, all at once a storm comes up. And evidently, because of the language, uh, at least at the beginning of the storm, Jesus seemed to go into the back of the ship and go to sleep, and they seemed to be abandoned by it. And now they're in the middle of a storm, and it must have been a doozy. That's Oklahoma for big. You know, that's, that's Okilingo for big. It was a doozy. And remember this, they made their living sailing. There's not much about a storm that they don't know or about a ship that they can't do. And the scripture says they were scared to death. That means it was a big, big storm. The funny thing that I noticed when I read this passage is that uh, the storm came up right in the middle of them doing the will of God. You remember Jesus said, let's get a ship and go over to the other side. And they took him. They carried him on board under his orders, by his instruction. Now they're out in the middle of the ocean and a storm comes up 
and he seems to have abandoned them and gone to sleep. And here they are about to lose their lives. And it came in the middle of doing the will of God. Do you know most Christians get the mistaken idea that if you're filled with the Spirit, uh, living in the center of God's will, nothing bad will happen. I've tried to share. Steve is always telling us the opposite is reality, and I'm trying to underscore that. It uh, doesn't matter whether you're in the will of God or not. You're going to face storms. In fact, Jesus faced some of the greatest storms imaginable, and he was never out of the will of God. He always lived in the will of God. So this storm comes in the center of God's will. See, most Christians, when storms come, they immediately think, what have I done wrong? Well, it might not be an issue of doing anything wrong. It could be an issue of having done something right, obeyed the Lord, moved right into the center of God's will, and here comes a storm. I loved Marty's message last Sunday morning when he described uh, this uh, who are the guys that uh, took the trip uh, early on in the United States? And Lewis, Lewis and Clark. Thank you. Lewis and Clark. On the Lewis and Clark expedition, they were to find the way west to, uh, to the coast. And so they came to these mountains. And they decided, oh, if we go over this mountain, then the waters will start going down toward the west. And we'll be all right as long as we can get to the night. So they... They worked to get to the top of the mountain. And they looked, and there wasn't anything but bigger mountains. And I thought that's one of the best illustrations of what it was to obey the Lord, get right in the middle of some mountaintop experience, and you think, oh, the hard part's over. And you look, and I'll be if there aren't bigger mountains than you could ever imagine. And that's what they were doing in this ship, the will of God. And all at once, this huge storm comes up. Now, the scripture says um, they were doing everything they knew to do. In simple language, they were bailing. I mean, their buckets were working. Now they were bawling, too, crying. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Jesus doesn't seem to care. We're going to die. Bailing and bawling. That sounds like what I do most of the time in the middle of the storms that come my way. I spend my time trying to fix it the best I can, and I usually am bawling all the way through it. You know what I mean? I identify with these disciples. And so that's the condition of the Savior and the concern of the sailors. But now I want you to notice, and we're going to park here for a little bit, the command of the Sovereign. They finally went in, and here's what they said. Lord, wake up. Don't you even care that we're perishing? And the scripture says, Jesus stood up, and the first thing that he did was rebuke the destroyer. In other words, the very thing that would destroy them, he rebuked. He stood up. And said, now King James says, peace be still. And we get this mental image when we read that, that Jesus stood up and he was, you know, this good looking Anglo-American guy. And he stood up and he said, peace 
be still. That's not what happened. That phrase, peace be still, is exactly the same Greek phrase that was used when the scripture says Jesus had the Gadarean demoniac come toward him and he was screaming and yelling and Jesus spoke and said, peace be still. No, he didn't. I don't want to mimic him here on this because it'll just be outrageous. But what he said was, shut up. And you know what happened? The storm stopped. The storm, the destroyer quit. Now listen carefully to me. Isn't it wonderful to know that in the middle of the worst storm imaginable, Jesus has the power and the authority to speak the word, shut up, stop, Quit it, and it does. Now, my question is, why doesn't he say that every time? Why doesn't he speak the word? I don't have an answer as to why, except the one I'm going to be giving you in the rest of these few moments. But the fact is, he could speak the word of rebuke and the destroyer is no longer able to do its work. But notice, he not only rebuked the destroyer, he rebuked the disciples. He said to them, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Oh, you of little faith. In other words, Jesus rebuked them for the lack of faith. Now, wait a minute. Does it mean when we have fear that it's automatically an evidence of a lack of faith? My answer to that is, I don't think so. Fear is a human emotion. And sometimes really smart, sharp people get a little bit afraid. Like the time my car in Northwest, uh, in uh, Right off of Britain Road, actually. Crossing a track, and my car died. Right in the middle of the track. I was working for Western Lumber Company at the time. You know, now the train could come, but I remember this feeling, you know, inside me. As I t well, it started, and I moved on. But the point is, you know what I felt in that moment? I had a little interfere. And part of the reason was because a few months before that, another car had stopped on that track only, and the late woman driver couldn't get it started, and I and the other guy started running from Western Lumber to try to help, and we were too late. And so when that happened, of course there's... And I don't think it's because I was a lacking faith in the moment. I think it's because I was really pretty sharp to know that if I don't get this thing going, I'm in trouble. And besides that, there are other fears. It's just normal natural. I hate snakes. I can't stand snakes. I know some people say, oh, they don't hurt you. I don't care. I don't want to learn. I don't want to even talk about it. I just, I just don't like them. Now, my wife is the exact opposite. 
When she and the siblings were growing up, they used to play with snakes. They caught one and she cooked it. Now, I'm telling you the truth. They cooked it. Fred said it was good. I remember one time I was traveling and we were members of a little church in Norman and we went to our pastor and his wife uh, by their invitation to their home and the, she'd fixed us uh, a meal. And oh, we were going to have fun. Their son was Stephen. Their daughters were gone at the time. Stephen was there and uh, we were around the table and Stephen said, uh, Brother Paul, he's talking to me, uh, would you like to see my pet boa constrictor? I said, no, Stephen, I don't. And had I known you had a pet boy constructor, a constrictor, I wouldn't be here eating a meal. <laughs> and, uh, oh, you know, so we went on. To, I didn't notice, but uh, pretty soon, Mary came walking out of his room and had that boy wrapped around her arm and put it in my face. That is a mortal sin. <laughs> True story. Our grandkids was with us in the house we live in now. Had a little shack out back. And we opened that shack, getting the tools out, and there was a big bull snake in there. Now, they tell me bull snakes won't harm you. I don't care what they tell you. You know, Mary went out, got that bull snake, literally chased me out the side gate, up the road, with our grandkids roaring with laughter, and all the neighbors wondering, what's wrong with Paul and Mary? I mean, this gal, I think she's going to become a Christian one of these days. <laughs> Fear is not sin automatically. Now, tell me, would you not have been a little bit fearful inside you in the middle of that storm? Any person who knows what a tornado is about knows what that means. There's a little bit of fearfulness inside. That's a human emotion. So what Jesus was talking about when he said, oh, you have little faith, he was not, and then he said, why are you so fearful? He was not talking about the fear itself was the thing that evidenced lack of faith. What he was talking about is because of their fear, now listen, they said to him, don't you care that we're perishing? In other words, whatever is not a faith is sin. So if I make a statement, don't you care that I'm perishing? It's not my behavior that's my problem. It's my belief that's my problem. Don't you know there's never a storm, Jesus was saying to them, in effect, where I don't care and where I'm not with you in the middle of it even when it seems I'm not. That's where they were lacking in their faith. Have you ever heard somebody uh, talk about a plane crash? And uh, uh, multiple people are killed. Uh, multiple people get through it. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, I made it through that plane crash. The Lord was with me. Now, does that mean the Lord wasn't with the people who didn't make it? Are we to believe that the Lord wasn't there for them? Yeah, I'm going to think that faith is understood by believers when they're able to say, according to this passage of Scripture, the end of a plane crash and their loved one didn't come through 
where I hear them say, I don't understand why not. I don't understand why it happened. But I know the Lord loves us. He's with us. And that I will rest in because he had a different purpose for us than for the others. That's the life of faith. We talk about Peter in jail, chained. Uh, the jailer, you know, the, the midnight, the chains fall off. The jailer's converted, all that kind of stuff. And Peter is delivered from prison. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. In fact, the church prayed for his deliverance. What about James? James was in prison also. I have a feeling the church prayed for James, only the chains didn't fall off. His head did. They beheaded him. Now, was Peter a man of faith and James was not? No. No, no. It isn't a lack of faith that determines what the outcome is in terms of God's purpose for us. The evidence of faith is believing he's there, he loves us, and while we may not understand, his purpose is different for us than for other people. So that James was a man of faith as surely as was Peter. Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and preached full of the Spirit and power. And 3,000 got converted. Man, who doesn't want to preach under the anointing of the Spirit and 3,000 get converted? But in the book of Acts, down the road to the right a little bit from that event of Peter on the day of Pentecost, there's another man full of the same Holy Spirit. He even plagiarized the sermon of Peter, preached it almost exactly as did Peter, and nobody got converted. They all got mad and stoned him to death, and Stephen met the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Was God with Peter on Pentecost and not with Stephen at his neck? No, no, no. Real faith understands no matter the storm, no matter the result, no matter the ending of whatever it is that we're in, the truth is, and I will stand on it, Jesus is with me. He loves me. He cares. And whatever the outcome, it's his purpose for my life. Oh, I'll ask him for deliverance. And if he does, I'll thank him for delivering me. I'll ask for deliverance. And if he doesn't, I'll thank him for fulfilling his purpose in my life. So you see, there is no promise anywhere in the scripture that the evil times won't be upon us. The post office, Wedgwood, those events. In fact, it could be that the more we move toward the return of Jesus to set up his eternal kingdom, those kinds of things increase. We, there may be, but the point I'm saying is that men and women of faith, no matter the circumstance, take a stance, take a position of belief. Whatever the outcome in this terrible moment I'm facing, I know God loves me. He's with me. And only his purpose for me will be fulfilled. So how do you move from fear to faith? Well, what would the men on the boat have done had they been men of faith? Would they have quit bailing? Would they have quit bawling? 
I'm not sure about the bawling part, but they would have kept Bailey. In other words, what would they have done differently had they been men of faith? Nothing. Except believing he didn't care. He wasn't with them. He didn't have purpose. That's what faith is all about. And that's why the book of Hebrews ends with the hall of heroes. All of those who did not see come to fulfillment the object of their faith, but the God who they trusted got glory to himself, oftentimes even in their death. And that's why being filled with the Spirit is no guarantee that there won't be consequences, terrible things happen. So you know what my suggestion to us all is? Uh, when you leave your house, go ahead and set your alarm. When you get in your car, go ahead and buckle up. When you need to fix your car to make sure it runs right so it won't stall on the track, take your car in and have it fixed. Do everything you can to see that things are good. Be cautious, be careful. Be consistently in that. But when things happen, when the storms come, and all you know to do is to bail, do whatever you know to do, the thing you won't do is wonder, does he care? Has he left me? Is he out of, is he not in control? No. People of faith always trust his person and his purpose, no matter the circumstances. Does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense yet, I'll say it again. If it does, well, we'll just end it. I think you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I wish I could promise you that the storms won't come. The only thing I'm promise you is that they will. I wish I could promise you you wouldn't have to bail. Do what you can. But I can't promise you that you will have to bail. So do I. But when that which you cannot control comes and it appears that to you it's the end, you can trust him. You can stand firm that he is who he is and he will accomplish what he purposes. That's moving from fear to faith.